0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bau Podcast. For episode 27, we invited Regina Zirian. Regina is head of sales at Qatar. She was born and raised in Mexico, where she studied and worked until she moved to Amsterdam in 2018. She worked for Uber from 2016, first in Mexico City, and from 2018 onwards in Amsterdam until she left the company in 2021 to join Qatar. Cutter is a Dutch company that was founded in 2021. And at Cutter, experts from two worlds come together, software engineering and woodworking. As a team, they work on the latest technology to make custom woodworking faster, easier and cheaper. People can upload their designs on the Cutter website and will receive an offer in a maximum of 12 hours. I am very curious today to hear more about Regina's activities and, of course, uh, uh, about Qatar's activities. So let's directly dive into it. Welcome Regina. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you. Thanks for that um, lovely introduction. I'm doing well. How are you, Ben?
0: Uh, Also very well, yeah. Um, It's better weather than yesterday, so that's quite nice uh, during autumn in Belgium. Regina, I think maybe uh, to start at the very logical beginning. Can you maybe explain a little bit more? Um, yeah, Cutter itself and how you ended up at Cutter. For sure,
1: I can start at the very beginning and tell you a little bit about where Cutter started and why it was founded. Um, and then from there, I can tell you a little bit about my story um, when I joined. So Cutter initially. Um, was the brainchild of three co-founders. Rodney is one of them. He comes from the woodworking industry. He had his um, joining workshop for about 10 years, um, grew to a 20-people team, uh, and so had that experience going and sort of understood the market and understood the pain points and the difficulties of the market. Second was Oscar, who comes from uh, Uber as well. He had sort of the tech and um, marketplace business model in his experience. And the third is Jasper and Jasper has a super interesting background in advertising, but also loves to code in his free time and has loved to do this for a really long time. And so the three of them came together, uh, about two and a half years ago, or maybe even three years now, and decided that this was an opportunity where it would make sense to build a business and they founded it in 2021. And we launched um, our public website, if you will, uh, end of that year, almost beginning of 2022. And I had met Oscar back at Uber and I was looking to take my next step after, um, yeah, a little bit over five years at Uber. And I basically started conversations with him. And in 2021, I hopped over and joined the team. At that point, we were five people: um, two software engineers and three co-founders. And yeah, now we're a team of thirty. So it's been loads of learnings. I had never really worked anywhere close to the wood industry before then, um, but it's been really interesting—a really interesting journey to take my learnings from the marketplace um, and tech industry into into wood, which is yeah something really new for me.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, there are some uh, um, similarities between I think Uber and Cutter, like it's both a two-market a two-sided marketplace, if I'm correct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but otherwise, like <laughs> it's a com- like we were discussing it a little bit before we started recalling yeah, the construction industry and maybe specifically the wood cutting industry. It's a completely different ball game, right?
1: Definitely not related to the transport or the uh, food delivery business at all. But you are right. There is um, definitely some something similar in, in our marketplace model. Um, we do see ourselves as um, supply and demand coming together um, through technology. So we are a software-enabled marketplace um, that's playing in the wood industry. And we're, as far as we know, um, one of the first, if not the first, to be able uh, to do that and to try and and bring that new market um, model into the industry.
0: And why did Oscar and uh, Jasper, and what was it? Uh, Rodney. Rodney, what, why did the guys think that that was a valuable thing to do? I mean, I, I know Oscar, so uh, um, uh, he explained it once to me, but I think it's very interesting to to explain to the audience as well. Like, why did they get ex- got excited about yeah uh, going behind this opportunity in the in the wood uh, working uh, industry
1: yeah it's a great question um so one of the key uh triggers for when uh we identify something to be a good business is probably when there's loads of inefficiencies and lots of problems to solve and the wood industry particularly the woodworking industry is likely one that hasn't really had that much of a Technological investment in the last few years, for sure, there were, you know, things with with machining um, happening, and you know, CNC and computer controlled machining going on. But when it comes to the business model, really hadn't been looked at for a really long time. And yet, the interactions between customers and uh, wood manufacturers or, or woodworkers and wood producers are still very inefficient. And Rodney, coming from that industry, Had a really good uh, firsthand experience from what that meant and in really broad terms what happens in the woodworking market is somebody has an intent a design and that party is not going to be the same party that produces the design so there's several layers that that exist between the designer or the person that ideates a design and the person that's building it and normally in those layers, there's loads of miscommunication, um, loads of errors or missed details, uh, loads of back and forth, uh, people change their minds. People forget to give all the details and deadlines change and, and, um, budgets also change. So having, um, tech try and help make those interactions easier is really where the opportunity was spotted. And so what we're trying to build is software and technology to help bring those two languages together. You normally have a designer on one hand speaking a very design forward language, whereas the woodworker or the production facility will speak a lot more of a technical wood language. And those normally aren't um, really easy to translate. So as much as we can, we're building the tools to help that conversation become easier and faster and more intelligent uh, with software.
0: Right, so if I try to make it very um, concrete, uh, um, like I am an architect, I drew something in SketchUp, which looks nice, which my uh, residential client likes. Mm-hmm. And I need to get that nice looking SketchUp design manufactured at the best possible rate, at the best possible uh, quality. But traditionally, I would need to start contacting wood workshops one by one. Um, I have no idea whether, whether they have the capacity, the space to manufacture this, even if they have the capability to manufacture this. And I don't even know what a good price is because. It's not my main job to know what the right price is for custom cabinets. And the long-term ambition of Cuttle, or the, the current, what you guys currently do is that, as that, that the architect he can upload the SketchUp file, and within for 24 or 12 hours he gets a quote, a delivery date, uh, and that's it. From one side of the of, the, uh, of the, the, the platform.
1: Exactly. Yeah, so what you just described is, is what the, um, the, the demand side or customers would experience. Upload a file. We have built software that analyzes that file and allows us to quote much faster than the average um, time that the industry takes. Um, we're also connected to material databases so our pricing is um, updated in real time and our models analyze the manufacturing requirements for building that assembly and the um, techniques needed and and we have the costs for building that. And so we can provide that quote really quickly. And on the supply side, which basically means the network of production facilities and production partners that we have on our platform, we can really quickly um, see and understand the capabilities and the capacity in real time for that project, and so we can match much more efficiently a project to a production facility, which would take, as you mentioned, an architect's probably loads of you know time and, and overhead to um, discover, identify who is the right, who are the woodworkers or interior builders out there that can produce um, his design, his or her design and what the price would be you know calling them up waiting for quotes we we have definitely seen quotes be you know two to three weeks even five weeks sometimes when when product, producers are really busy and so what we try to do is really shorten that time frame and give the uh the customer the all the information they need to make, to make a decision mm-hmm. and once that's decided Uh, our software can also then provide the producer or the manufacturing facility, all the information they need to, uh, to cut that straight away. And we provide the design files. We provide all the material information that's already been sort of digested into a standard format so that they know what to expect from us. And the delivery details are all included. And we also have agreed on a price. So there's no more guesswork and, um, at that point, no more back and forth with the customer. So for the product, production facilities that we work with for the for our network, we're also an inbound channel where they don't have to worry about finding the customer and doing a bunch of quotes that won't then convert into a real job because by the point they get a job from us, it's secure.
0: Mhm. <clears throat> and yeah, we were discussing we were discussing it before again before we were calling. But for the uh, ma- from the manufacturing side, there are a couple of extra benefits as well, right? There's the uh, the software, yeah, the fact that they get like an, a, a ready to quote software file because usually they get something that they still need to transfer to their uh, manufacturing software, right?
1: Yeah, they we've heard as we also get. Loads of napkin sketches as well. Yeah. And <laughs> from us, they can expect a ready-to-go file.
0: Napkin sketches.
1: Napkin sketches. Sketches um, on a napkin <laughs> from serious architects. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, pr- I shouldn't probably laugh too loud. Um, um, yeah, I, yeah it's, I, I can imagine these things still happen, yeah?
1: Yeah. And, and from our perspective, there's, there's a couple of benefits, but really within, um, within the network that, that they can get from... Uh, using Cutter. So first of all, of course, is new jobs, new customers, um, which allows them to get jobs when they are um, low on their own sales and maybe have dips in, in production or they have extra capacity laying around so they can fill up their machines with jobs from Cutter. Um, they also have access to our tools. So we've developed our tools in the framework of a two-sided marketplace to make that that transaction more efficient. But what we're seeing is a lot of the Uh, Producers that we work with actually really like the tools that we've developed for ourselves and are starting to want to use them for their own um, facilities, for their own companies, be that our quoting software or our um, project management tracking um, or payments and and credit facilities as well. And the the third one I'd add is also a lot of the times we're seeing is that our producers become our customers when they are. low on capacity and they have too much work so they don't want to lose their customers and they don't want to um, have to delay a deadline but they may not have the right um, capacity at that moment or maybe they don't have the right machines to produce a certain type of job and so they come to us as a customer in that case and sort of let the cutter network also do work for them so it's a really interesting dynamic um, that we're seeing in the marketplace where you know sometimes they come to cutter to get a job and sometimes they come to cutter to give a job and get get that produced.
0: When you explain it like this, it seems like such a logical idea that it's one of those things that when you're a little bit familiar in the industry, as we are with with, with Sam as well, like it's all so many issues that you start to wonder like, why didn't anyone do this before? Like why didn't any of the big, I don't know, uh, um, kitchen uh, material manufacturers do this like it seems such a obvious thing to do um yeah
1: that's a great question and <laughs> i think for sure hindsight is 2020 and it's you know it was such a an obvious market need but the reality is that it's a lot more simply described than built mm-hmm. so there's loads of complexities when you start to want to port um manufacturing techniques and languages between different players in the industry. The, the software is available for CAD, for CAM, for quoting are so fragmented and there's so many of them and the woodworking techniques um, that each woodworker or interior builder will, will use are so varied and there's no real mapping or there's no real book. To tell you, here's here's all the possibilities, and you know you just pick one. Um, so building that intelligence and, and market knowledge out was really the first step that we had to learn over the first couple of years, and you know we're still learning, and we're learning, we're learning from our own customers and our own producers, and we really like to work with different producers that understand the vision of where we want to take Cutter and, and want to become part of that, and so we have really fruitful relationships with some of our partners where they um contribute just as equally to building the software and building the the intelligence behind it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. It, it sounds great when you pitch it like this and very straightforward, but behind the scenes there's probably a whole lot of uh complexity to to solve. Um and it's something that we've noticed as well. I mean it's something that we've struggled throughout the years as well. We you design in a certain software In our case, SketchUp, because it's easy. You can put add-ons on it to make it look nice for commercial purposes, but then when you need to ship it to your manufacturer, he uses his specific software and that software is linked to his specific manufacturing line and that software doesn't allow certain degrees of freedom that SketchUp does because there's no gravity in SketchUp. That's something (laughs) that we needed to learn. Like You can design any cabinet that you want in SketchUp and it will stand up and it will look great, but when you start putting it into reality you know yeah the guy uh, who manages the factory is like uh, <laughs> yeah that doesn't work that no way <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and if you then multiply that by different because that's something maybe that I also learned and I don't know how yeah you like already mentioned it but like there's so many different manufacturing softwares for cabinets so many like how did that happen like in architectural in an architectural sense like for an architect you have like two or three big ones now what is it Autodesk, Revit uh, they, they they all design in like three different software packages but cabinet um, manufacturers what happened there Less like thousands <laughs> like small little softwares made by Belgian Super family fun. businesses like that's what our that's what our manufacturing party works with that you like but huh? there's no like, big multinational who is doing this
1: no it's the uh the market that was forgotten just little players were trying to tackle each uh reinventing the wheel and so there's i think some bigger software companies attempting to build an overlay that maybe plugs in or connects them um, but i don't think anybody has managed to crack it just yet
0: is that something you guys are also aiming for
1: that's definitely something we're important. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's the million-dollar cracking question. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Something that connects one software to 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 connect them all. Yeah.
1: One software to rule them all. Yeah. Okay. Or at least, yeah. It doesn't even need to to translate as long as somebody can just use the output of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And, is the experience that you had with Uber, which I can um imagine yeah you were there from 2018 till 2021 21 yeah right does the experience that you and oscar had there and maybe all the people from the team as well like how much is it being translated into color right now and how much did you had the idea uh if you had the idea of like okay we're gonna do the same thing but for the woodshop market like how how did that end up like the 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 theory did it end up with the the practical things i mean i don't know if i'm am i making myself clear <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: um definitely no i i think there's there's definitely principles that uh <clears throat> that are applicable when building marketplaces um for any industry and any application so i think we brought a lot of that know-how and a lot of that um of those learnings into cutter there's definitely a really big learning curve and ramp up to try and translate those learnings into a different industry at a very different stage. Um, I also, I also think like by the point I had joined Uber and um, Oscar has a completely different experience here because he was a lot earlier and he saw a lot of more of the sort of basic foundational blocks of Uber get built. Um, the difference from going to from zero to one um In a new industry is still so massive there's so many things to build and to figure out and to crack while you can apply some of the learnings and some of the principles that you know we brought with us there's just so many things to discover understand and um honestly just make mistakes with you know we had really spiky first months when we had you know super big wins but also really big um, mess ups that we had to get across and learn the tough way. And the reality is also that the industry itself is so fragmented. There's no central body of knowledge that we can tap into. Um, There's of course levers that we can pull and and different networks that we can call it infiltrate to um, scale and um, speed up our learning curve. But the learning curve is still um, Still is something to get through, and I mean we're we're not across it, of course, but we're in a much better place of understanding the dynamics and the um, the networks of the industry now.
0: Yeah, um, something that I always uh, learned from a distance through podcasts and uh, uh, stuff like that is like the the big challenge of like starting a two sided marketplace is like demand and supply must go equally is that something that you're noticing now as well
1: definitely um one thing that we did come across um or that we ported across from our, our time at uber is you you want to make sure supply is there and having more supply than demand will fix a lot of the problems that will come out of um, of these marketplace interactions naturally just by having more supply
0: more supply than demand yeah I would, I would think that it would be opposite.
1: There's there's something to say about how much you can sustain having more supply without enough demand. But you definitely want to think of building the supply um, side faster because loads of, of, of marketplace challenges, um, for example, um, lead times or pricing or quality can actually be fixed a lot naturally at scale when you have optionality on your supply side. Mm. And so if you just... You know, if you're stuck with one production facility and you have multiple customers, you really don't have anywhere to turn to when you have a quality issue or when you have a pricing issue or a lead time issue. But the more um, supply that you have, you can actually correct those marketplace issues a lot more um, naturally. And the only sort of thing to keep in mind is that you need to sustain that a little bit artificially as well. So you have to have... What we found is probably you have to have some really highly engaged first production partners so that they understand that they're brought into the vision and that they don't expect you to have your demand side figured out immediately.
0: Okay. Right. Yeah. So you set up the first manufacturing parties, but you say, look, you are the first. Yeah. And demand will come. Yeah. Let us know how you would like that demand to come in this case, like what's the best way we can deliver the demand to you and then go from there
1: yeah and our our first manufacturing partners yeah. and our, we call them production partners at cutter um our first production partners really were key to us um developing the right tools and the right understanding of the market because even if rodney indeed came from the industry he has the viewpoint of one single production facility and what we've learned is that facilities Mm. with you know 500 meters distance between each other will do things completely differently and there is not one book that tells you all the different possibilities and this knowledge isn't really shared anywhere so that's also one thing that we want to make sure that we build into our software is the intelligence of you know best practices and um optimization of woodworking Mm -hmm.
0: was there also like an uh an environment environmental uh um, idea behind starting color, like working with wood, is it something that, or scaling the 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 amount of manufacturing that happens in wood, is it something where you see environmental benefits in?
1: A hundred percent. That is, or has been, and and is one of our sort of main north stars is to eventually um, increase the size of the pie of the wood market because where we want to get to is a place where more um, often than not, people choose wood over other less sustainable materials. And the way to get there is to make wood cheaper, faster and more efficient for everybody involved. And I think at least personally success for Cutter would be the day where actually wood is preferred over other materials. And that has been one of the sort of goalposts. And of course, We believe we can create a lot of impact in that area at scale it's of course really hard to say you know with two years of operations this is how much impact we've already had but um as we scale and become a more active player in the marketplace and um start to understand what those transactions and woodworking are then we can uh, make those more efficient and build the right products to make those more efficient and so that sort of grows the the industry but we do believe, I mean, what is the only um, material you can plant and, and regrow? It's carbon, carbon trapping and yeah, regrowable. So we definitely think what is the future and we want to make sure that we're giving it enough love and attention as an industry um, to make that a reality. Of course, governments and different players have um, their heads in the right place. Because loads of regulations are moving in that direction, which is awesome to see. Um, and one thing we want to do is be able to facilitate that transition with technology, with data, um, and, and helping all players in the industry be more efficient to reach those really ambitious goals.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a very uh, positive goal, uh, very Great ambition, and also when you extrapolate it far enough, I think it it ends up in, as you say, making these manufacturing parties more efficient, and efficiency translates to lower prices, right? Um, not necessarily lower margins, but lower prices, which indeed makes it more, yeah, accessible to the market. Because that's something that I usually hear here when it's when it's, yeah, not necessarily when we sell our solution. Um, but when it's about building in wood, for example, that they always say, yeah, it's great, but it's more expensive. Like, that's one of the main arguments I hear developers saying quite often. And yeah, you're not yet building entire buildings? Or are you? Right? Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Okay, <laughs> let's not run uh, run ahead. But I can imagine that if you extrapolate this vision, that's where it's going to go to.
1: Definitely, yeah. So... um Oscar puts it really, um, CEO, Oscar, CEO yeah. and co-founder. He, he puts it very well when he explains the way that we're um, learning to walk before we run by building product and software and, and playing in the last sort of bits of the supply chain um, with lower risk projects. So if we, um, if we're building software and we're building this marketplace in a transaction that's worth, you know, maybe some thousands of euro or maybe a hundred thousand euro, that's still, if we make any type of mistake because we want to iterate and we want to move very quickly, um, that's still less risky than making a mistake of building the wrong thing for a building. Um, So we definitely want to crack first um, the smaller um, types of projects in the wood industry and call that interiors or standalone furniture um, the most complex things we are doing now are tiny homes. So we are getting into structural um, in a very small scale, but um, we re- we definitely cannot just start with construction. So we're sort of learning the basics by um, trying to gather as much data as we can from from playing in the interior building industry first before we sort of expand. Um, but it's definitely in the plans and it's definitely where we want to get to because that's really where the uh, the impact uh Speaking about sustainability, where we can reach it. Hmm.
0: Um. Maybe if we skip from the grand vision a little bit back to the beginning. Um. I also think it's quite impressive that you guys have only existed for two years now, twenty twenty one, right? In the middle of COVID.
1: Yeah. Um. Definitely. We we launched in I think it was like late December, early January, twenty twenty two um so now that 2022 january so yeah december 2021 january 2022 were the first um actual ramp up of our call it publicly facing uh marketplace so and it's so. actually
0: only 18 months that you are up and
1: running yeah i mean we're at november so in two months it'll be two years wow yeah yeah and in that time frame i think i mean we have a fantastic team and we have uh, really smart people Um, tackling this problem so I've been super happy to see what progress we've made in two years and of course very excited about the future but already you know knowing where we started with one producer we have 150 producers now on our network um, and growing really quickly so that's that's really exciting and um, geographically we started in the Netherlands and that's of course where our main market is but um, we have clients that are coming from Germany from Belgium and u k even and because geographically if if the transport makes sense, we're not really bounded by um sort of geographic location too much, so we have space to explore a little bit, so we've grown quite quite quickly in those almost two years
0: a hundred fifty manufacturing parties in less than two years yep. that's like eight eight seven eight a month that's more than one a week
1: yeah <laughs> have a fantastic uh, damn.
0: <laughs> Production really partner quickly. operations. Uh. <laughs> and um, can you maybe say a little bit more about how you, how, how do you grow a team and an organization that quickly? Like you're with 30 people now.
1: That's a great question. Um, I think we keep the bar really high for talent. We, we, have to, uh, we have to hire people that are willing to take the risk, of course, because we're a young company. Um, still loads to prove and loads to build. Um, but we've hired, uh, yeah, we've hired quite quickly, I guess, if you put it that way, we've gone from yeah five to 30, um, in, in 20 months. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there, there's definitely, um, there's definitely just the hiring aspect being very, um, Laser focused on what types of profiles we need, and, and really, why are we why are we hiring? Of course, in a resource constraint environment, as you will know, Ben, <laughs> you need to be very smart about when and who you hire and what for. Um, so, we've invested heavily in our software team for sure, and then this year we've also invested in our operations and sales teams. So now we have a, a really good mix of both people building tech and people being able to operate and sell that, and. I think we just have a really high bar for talent as well
0: i can imagine, but then there's a lot of work that goes into the, it's like the hr manager was one of the first hires you did then
1: we're all hr managers <laughs> <laughs>
0: you have not a single person responsible for hr
1: no everybody does recruiting everybody does really candidate sourcing um yeah we're all we're all wearing the hr hat to a certain extent we actually got hats made for a team event, and there was one with the HR hat that we were passing around because we don't have one.
0: <laughs> Whoa, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, everybody from the CEO to the most recent hire will be uh, in the interviews, um, keeping the bar high for for the next candidate.
0: Fascinating. So, when you have a new position open and and the the applications come in, like, all right, this week it's your turn, Regina. You do the you do the first selection, or like, how does that work?
1: I think it's worked differently for different um, growth spurs and uh, different parts of the team. But normally, the call it the, the team that needs to hire. We do have sort of heads of each department now, um, which is also recent. But we do have those, and and, and they would be the more, more or less responsible for like, yeah, for the hiring process and and for organizing that. But we all participate in each other's processes. Um, we we think. I mean human resources or our employees are the strongest thing we can bring the most value add that we can bring to the company. So hiring is the number one priority when we are hiring right now, we're not hiring anymore for now. Um, but when we were earlier this year and we all, yeah, for the last two years we've been hiring and everybody puts on the HR hat. We have, of course, in some cases we have, um, hired some external support for for some sourcing but when it comes to the um internal process we're all we're all helping each other out we have quite a long hiring process if i may say so um for ourselves but we really want to make sure that we have the right people on board so what's long strict.
0: how many steps how many interviews um, yeah i'm getting a little bit into yeah. because this is interesting we yeah. are hiring someone now so
1: so we I'm normally a little bit have asking <laughs>
0: questions for myself now. Sorry, audience, if this isn't interesting, but uh, it's a little, bit, a little bit selfish.
1: So I'll, I'll, I'll share an example of, of some recent hires. But um, Oscar gets involved, Rodney gets involved. So we have Oscar basically shooting out candidates' um, messages on LinkedIn to try and get some some attention, and then we would have sort of a first um, one-on-one interview, either with the hiring manager or with somebody else from the team sort of a first filter. Then we have a second one-on-one interview with a somebody that would be the peer of that person. And we, that's a little bit more technical. Um, so the first one's a little bit more just general, cultural um, and sort of motivation type of gauge. And then second is a little bit more technical. And then we have a, uh, normally we do like some type of, of exercise or case study. And we invite the candidate to the office if possible. Um, otherwise, we do a video call. And there's a panel of, of uh, a few people, maybe two or three people um, that are present. And case study normally has a couple of sections. One's a little bit more data focused, depending on the department. Another one's more practical. Um, maybe one's strategic. It really depends on what type of role we're hiring. Um, for engineers, of course, it'll be an engineering exercise. Um, and if needed, there'll be a, just the last sort of fit um, interview where there's just a coffee in a more relaxed environment. Mm-hmm. So,
0: four interviews.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a lot. Uh, we do usually three. Uh, we don't do the coffee at the end. Um,
1: yeah. So it's four. And then I guess one of the stages you meet three more people. Or right. So.
0: Interesting okay um and yeah maybe it's it's um it's kind of obvious but like this this type of business is really grown via venture backed funding right yes. yes how how is how is that how did that go in the last couple of years and, and how are you looking at the current market and what are the benefits and like the the the, the downsides of it
1: yeah so um originally, and this was before I joined Cutter, there was some sort of angel investors and, um, you know, friends and family rounds going. Um, Then we hired, Oh, we didn't hire, sorry, we we raised our uh, seed round last year, I believe it was in April. And this was um, a process that actually started probably since January. So we had actually just really launched. But Luckily, we were able to show some revenue even, you know, the moment we we, we started, we were already revenue generating. So those conversations were a little bit easier. And um, of course, dipping into like the network of of the co-founders and um, the connections that we had, we were able to raise VC money from um, three different parties. So
0: that's VC money for a seed round? Yeah. And on average, these type of seed rounds in the US are like anywhere between two to five million? And that's the same here when you do it in Europe.
1: Well, we raised our, our uh, main investor for their seed round was from the US. Okay. Secondary yeah. were from UK and Germany. Okay. Um, so we have a really good mix of of investors, which essentially at this stage are advisors, and we tap right. into them for um, advice and and networking and knowledge and loads of really good introductions when you are trying to build a team and a company at this stage. Um, and so. That was luckily before um, the tech market and the Mm -hmm. the cash availability in the tech market went to where it went last year. And um, luckily as well, now we're seeing that start to become a little bit more liquid, more. Yeah. I think it's going to be much better now than wanting to have raised maybe six months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're looking to raise our series a round end of this year or beginning of next. And that's where we're at. We're, uh, yeah.
0: So the seat in early 2021?
1: 2022. 2022, right. Yeah,
0: 2022. Right. You launch the software yeah, and then the, okay. Yeah. And then that gives you two years, rough, roughly two years of runway. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Roughly. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Really exciting. Because and
0: with this type of business, like, there's never enough revenue in those early years to, like, yeah have 30 people on bagel <laughs> <around>. no <Yeah. laughs> definitely uh
1: definitely not bottom line profitable just yeah. yet um <laughs> not self-sustaining but yeah. me on our on our way yeah, um, yeah, yeah. ideally we we would have a option to do that mm. um pretty soon if we needed but we of course want to invest in, in growth and so we are looking to raise a a series a mm-hmm
0: yeah, it's more the American model. Huh? I think in the Netherlands, you see it more as well, but it's... Yeah, Yeah, you notice that you guys come from a company like Uber because doing something like how you guys are doing it, doing it in Belgium, doing it in Flanders, It's I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's so much more harder. difficult if you don't have access to those yeah. American and maybe even UK capital markets. Yeah,
1: uh, I think it's... Um, also given our business model and the software yeah. company behind yeah, it, absolutely. it allows us to do yeah. that. And we also went through Y Combinator um, <laughs> <Yeah>. last <laughs> that, that's year. A so lot that of course <laughs> that sort of paves a really nice path to have these conversations for sure. But it is it is more of the um traditionally American uh, Maybe explain that to the
0: audience because I'm not sure if everyone knows how big of a deal is <laughs> Y Combinator. That's like oh, Harvard for for startups, right? It's
1: like Harvard for startups, yeah. sure. And I think that um this was the co-founders applying um in 2021. So, yeah, even before I joined, but they I think they got rejected once before they got accepted. I'll have to confirm that before we put this into the podcast, but um I'm pretty sure.
0: Doesn't really matter, right?
1: They got rejected the first time and then the second time they uh they got in. And this was the winter batch of 2022. So that's January through March. And it's um, only two months. Three, I think. three months, yeah. January, February. March. I'm pretty yeah. sure it was only three months. Um, really, really intensive for the co-founders. It's a, it's a co-founder program. So basically, um, it's a look. I think Y Combinator has a different way of explaining it, but I still think the simplest way of putting it is a boot camp um, for startups.
0: Three month boot camp. Yeah, with less physical focus but more mentally focused. <laughs> exactly. It used to
1: be. It used to be physical, like in person before. But after COVID, they've now done it digitally, and um, the end goal, of course, is to raise uh, to raise investment at the end of it. And so, Y Combinator now has an option where they also are part of that investment. Um, they do as soon as um, a company gets accepted, they get some type of fundraise um, or some type of, some type of investment from Y Combinator themselves. And then um, there's an option to extend that after, um, after the the program. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a three month program where the company gets to meet or the co founders get to meet uh, a bunch of different companies and uh, in the same stage. And I think they get assigned a, an advisor or some type of coach from, from Y Combinator to, um, to guide them and to advise them through that.
0: And then it's a three-month period of just f- focusing on product-market fit, getting the value proposition as clear as possible. Exactly. Maybe for traction.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit of everything to just make sure that you arrive to that pitch day with uh, all of the questions uh, answered beforehand.
0: And there's also a small financial...
1: There's a small financial uh, yeah, investment from Y Combinator. Um, I think it's somewhere a hundred or 200,000, um, U S dollars. And, uh, yeah, I, but I think more than, than the financial incentive, it's, it's the sort of network and the, the weight of the name that that carries, um, for a future round for sure. Yeah. I can imagine it sort of opens the door and guarantees a, an audience.
0: Cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah, that was a little bit a uh, sidetrack into uh, <laughs> the technicality of of uh, doing a F- high F- venture uh, startup. Um, but now, if we take it maybe a little bit back to the the uh, the value proposition of Color itself, uh, I was also wondering while you were explaining it, like how far does a service go? Like, if I put myself in the position of again, let's say that architect and and does it come with like full service in the sense of, can you guys also offer a quote for installation and transportation?
1: Yep. So we started with um, mostly just manufacturing, uh, but also saw the need very quickly to have a full, full service package. And so we now work on our supply side with our production partners that do offer installation, transportation, logistics. We've tried a bit of drop shipping as well. There's some, clients that we do that for um basically holding s- stock and shipping that out to their end customers when they need it
0: you hold stock yes our partners the partners right. but on behalf of cutter
1: right yeah. okay yeah. so i think putting it simply we can do you know simple production of shapes and we can ship it on pallets or we can do um production uh installation or assembly and installation of uh, full fit outs i call that interiors, um, sometimes exterior fit outs as well and um, product making. So be that furniture or just products that have loads of wood in them and um, you can call it retail products as well.
0: So in the best possible case, I have my design, I upload it on the platform, I get a quote, I accept the quote and two weeks later... It's delivered at the site and installed. And the only contact, or the only organization I have contact with, is Cutter.
1: Yes, if that's um, if that's what the customer wants and is possible, then that's how we we work. But yeah, you put it correctly. So the customer in this case could be an architect, an interior designer, um, a product designer, or a company um, that needs wooden products comes to the platform, they uh, can upload a design in 2D, 3D. We also take napkin sketches and uh, we've built a software that can analyze. The um, napkin. We don't analyze the <laughs> napkin just yet, but we're working on it. We're working on it. We're experimenting with some AI uh, translations of drawings now. But uh, ideally, yes, once we have that design in a readable format, um, our software can analyze the sort of components of it and um, the customer themselves can assign a material from a material catalog already to the uh, to the parts to the elements or you know there's also a sales a friendly sales team uh, waiting to help out if needed but um, the more information that we gather from the customer up front the faster that we can turn around a quote uh, we have just launched our uh, instant quote estimates as well so for um, simpler files and I guess one Um, one file types of orders with um, built in 3d Uh, we can already give a pretty accurate quote estimate up front so that customers get an idea of what they're going to need to pay Um, if they if that sounds good we can then prepare a binding quote for them after that and they just indicate what type of services they want along with it be that um pre-assembly or installation or simply just delivery and flat pack so we can adjust and adapt to the customer's needs. Of course, if it's going to be sort of a longer run project with uh, dropshipping services, we're definitely more than keen to discuss that and, and come up with a solution that works for everybody. Um, and once we prepare a quote and it's ready to go, then we'll uh, we'll hand that off to the best producer in our network for that t- particular Lead time, uh, material, specialty, technique, etc. And so we have that map built into the software, so we can d- really quickly just match those orders to the right producers. Um, of course, we work with customers that have different needs and different requirements, and we definitely can adjust um, to each, you know, to each customer and personalize a little bit what services we offer um, to make sure that they're comfortable uh, putting it up. But yeah, what what other you know? sort of side um, side models we can bring is we also just do RFQs on behalf of the customers. So sometimes our customers come RFQs. with requests for quotation. So customers maybe need to present three different options and we can help them with that already. So we can um, sort of flip the model around a little bit and present first three pricings and then with the customer choose which is the best match. And that's also sometimes a requirement in bigger cu- uh, companies for for example purchasing departments and they need to see three different quotations from three different producers and we can sort that out from a single place
0: and does the customer have any direct contact with the manufacturer or... it
1: depends okay it depends it really depends on the complexity of the project and and how like yeah how long-standing the relationships will be um we at some points do have to have a three-way conversation we all bring to welcome to the table we discuss details and you know we set up a a partnership in that way um but for the most part if you know if, if it's a straightforward enough project and it's going to be a one-time assembly that's also not really necessary because we have the team that does that on behalf of the customer with a production partner so we take the criteria the most important design elements the quality bar and basically the customer outsources that management to us and so we represent the customer with our production partner as well in that way we can do the quality assurance um we make sure that the tracking and you know that the project management is is done so we have a team of of people in-house to do that um that's the operations team Mm -hmm. and so we do that on behalf of the customers once the customers are happy and confident that uh yeah we can go forward
0: Mhm. Okay. Um I think looking at the time we are <laughs> approaching um uh, the end of uh, of this first uh, uh session of uh, of uh, of the podcast. Um but uh as you probably know at the end we always have a little bit the uh, tendency to ask a couple more personal and somewhat random questions. Yeah um and maybe that's a fun way to to close off this first this first edition um a fun one that we usually ask is if you could have drinks with anybody that are alive annoying flying little thing um if you could have drinks with anybody that are alive anyone that comes to mind
1: that was a hard one um i think i I'd, I'd want to have drinks with Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Okay. <laughs> I just find her so fascinating, not just, you know, her success story, um, in general, but her vision, her ability to see, um, you know, she was already famous and probably very rich, but she was like, "Now let's take it one step further and just make, you know, the generations after me also very well off. Um, and, and as a businesswoman, I think she's just admirable. So I'd love to, uh, to have a little chat with her.
0: I only know Oprah, but, but I think it's more, uh, first of all, uh, a, a woman thing, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, it's more an American thing. I never think she became that big in Europe.
1: That's probably true. That's probably true. I mean, being from Mexico, we're quite exposed to sort of the US pop yeah. culture. And so that's where my
0: i know her from like she had that talk show and then she had a book club and she did like a couple of great acting uh like a couple of great movies like the color purple isn't that with oprah no is I, it i don't know
1: i'd have to check yeah. i what i admire her is she she had her talk um her talk show but then she took it one step further and now has a network so it's not just you know being there's part a network. of network there's an Oprah network there's an Oprah network yeah. okay wow. and so it's just one step further than you know and does she still come
0: best. on the network now
1: i don't i'm not sure we don't get uh that network in uh, it's in just the Netherlands. a whole <laughs> day of,
0: of of talk shows and interview and oprah types of programs. yeah
1: and like as a producer i think she just you know she saw the opportunity and just decided to take it into her own hands you know she didn't just want to be part of the system mm-hmm. which is great
0: yeah absolutely it's very cool
1: and i think she's also a shareholder of weight watchers and some other ventures so yeah wow. great businesswoman
0: yeah absolutely um i think weight watchers is belgian what yeah i am not sure i need to double check this or like uh we can put it in the show notes whether it's true or not but i am <laughs> i think the main shareholder of weight watchers is belgian that- uh, bu- up till recently i think he sold it Wow! Yeah, I'm not sure. We will double check. Um, okay, um, if you would had uh, if you would had to do a job that has nothing to do with what you're doing right now, what would you be doing?
1: That's an easy one. Okay, I'd be a sommelier.
0: <laughs> oh, wines? Yeah. Yes, wines. Okay. Why wines. wines?
1: It's something that just has been in my family for forever. Like my dad would always just be super interested in wines and would just. Educate us on wine all the time. Any family vacation would have to have a visit to a winery, which is an interesting one. But re- more recently, I think it's been one of those topics where my dad and I have had a lot of things in common and have like found a really interesting way of uh, connecting. And I'm actually doing uh, a course to become a sommelier. So wow. hopefully, in the future, that won't be a what would you be question. It would just How's it going? Question.
0: Very cool. Any specific uh, bottles that you can recommend to the audience?
1: Ooh, that's a difficult one. Um, One bottle, if uh, for European listeners, would be easier to find. It's a Spanish wine called Cair, C-A-I-R. They have, I think, like three labels, at least available in the Netherlands, that I can find. But um, I visited the winery with, with my dad, actually. Um, I think it was last year and super nice winery, really nice wine and they're um, sort of entry-level wines, really accessible price and really nice.
0: Sounds great. Um, Did you ever see, I I once saw a documentary called Som. Oh yes. (laughs) I was blown away. I was like, how the hell, how, how like the guy who like smelled like a, a wine and he could say from which field in the winery and the year and the year it's insane like yeah the sun was more on this side <laughs> of the mountain so it's probably from like acre 1b where this is I was like,
1: these guys are crazy
0: what it's is so this is this insane. a thing is it something humans can do i was like blown away
1: it, yeah it definitely is it's very inspiring i don't think i'd ever get to that level my nose is not that refined but you basically i don't know this is a really long-winded answer but you have five levels of um and you actually have two schools you have the american school and the the uk school maybe there's more um but there's five levels and there's only a handful of people that had made it to the fifth including the guy in the um these guys in the in documentary made it to the fifth level so i'm currently going to level three. Um, oh, you
0: already are going to level three
1: i'm yeah i need to take my exam but I'm so a, you
0: already are sommelier
1: I'm, I'm a level two which is not not difficult to be I cannot give myself props for that. I think uh, it takes a weekend. Anybody can really uh, do okay, it. Okay, so it goes exponential. Yeah, yeah, definitely very hard to get four and five.
0: Okay. Impossible it, to get five. Is, is Fog an ambition?
1: Four? Uh, you know, I think I'll I'll be happy with three and maybe dedicating to teach two. <laughs> That's probably my ambition for now. But we'll see. Let's first start. How much
0: study is three?
1: Three is like a... Um, it's a three-month course for, yeah, a few full hours. full No. No, no, no. A few oh. hours a week, um, yeah, like three theory hours and another couple hours of wine tasting. There's practical. That's, fun part, That's right? the fun part, yeah. That's the fun part. That's the fun part. I think for level two, you have to try about 40 wines, and for level three, you have to try closer to like 80 um, or more. But honestly, there's a lot of like calibration you have to do uh, with your palate to be able to, do the exam which is includes a tasting for level three
0: okay so it's on location as well
1: yeah you have to uh, go to like a certified wine school to take it yeah
0: such a specific world <laughs> the wine world
1: <laughs> it's a really specific world but um it's a hobby that i'm quite passionate about and
0: seems that way yeah it's yeah. cool yeah sometimes you also have like uh, these dramas like that they sell certain bottles then which aren't those type of bottles and then there's another documentary yeah yes yeah i never (laughs) saw that one but i heard about it
1: yeah there's like um fake wines being sold yeah and then i
0: sometimes think like okay but you know how much of this entire like expensive wine thing is like ego and less skill and because if something like that can happen which like yeah i didn't explain it maybe well for the audience but like
1: counterfeit counterfeit, yeah, but like wine, a huge
0: huh? a huge amount yeah
1: yeah there's like huge counterfeit wine yeah. operations and mafias i'm sure um but honestly i i mean i just love wine like understanding wine in a way where you can speak about what you like and one of the things i think my dad told me and taught me which is why we connect about it, is you know just open that bottle because it's uh it's for enjoying. Mm-hmm. So, but it's nice to be able to speak about what you like and be able to sort of guide people on what they like by understanding the world of mm-hmm. wine and winemaking. So,
0: Very cool. Uh, and then maybe as a final one, uh, as we are really approaching the end now, uh, any book, that you have ever can be recently can be an older one that you've ever read that you would highly recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah, I just um, I finished a book called Everyday Dharma. I think it's Sunil Gupta. And I've never heard of the word Dharma before before this book. But the gist of it is um, loads of people think that you know you have to like find your life purpose and you're unhappy in your job and you need to quit and go do something completely different. And one example that it gives is there's this um, there's this woman working in a tech company as a product manager you know super successful on the outside you would think she'd be you know very happy very um, content with her success but she had always had this like little warm inside saying oh, you want to be a teacher and normally people are like I'm just gonna quit everything and be a teacher but Dharma speaks about the purpose in a way where you can find it every single day. And you don't necessarily need to change your entire career to understand what you like to do and what gives you a sense of purpose. And so this, this woman ended up um, understanding that what she liked to do was to uh, help others grow and help others learn. And by actually just changing um, her role within that same company to a different program where she developed younger uh, employees and candidates, she was super happy because she was doing what gave her purpose so it doesn't necessarily need to be you know just uplifting your life and changing your path completely but you can find really moments of the day that you really enjoy and and start to find your purpose through that and maybe do more of that
0: right doesn't need to be eat pray love no you don't need (laughs) (laughs)
1: to you don't need to quit everything and leave forever (laughs) and
0: go to italy and bali and uh, yeah exactly okay
1: so just finding those moments of the day, and I, right. I I found that very helpful as a framework to think about, you know, what do you really enjoy doing?
0: I think that's a beautiful way uh, or a beautiful place to uh, to end. Um, maybe Regina, if you have any last like call to actions to the audience, um, if there are any, I don't know, uh, people who have a big uh, wood manufacturing facility in their network or people who buy lots of cabinets like what's the best way they can get into contact with cutter
1: yeah anybody who needs anything made out of wood or who can make things out of wood let's let's talk um they can send me an email uh then we can put that in the in the notes or uh you can visit our our website cutter.com c-u-t-r
0: it used com. to be Garo.ai, huh?
1: Used to be. Uh, but ah. apparently this industry has a thing for AI, <laughs> which uh we tested it works best with dot com. Actually you can you can still use both, but it'll redirect you.
0: <laughs> All right. Perfect.
1: Um, yeah, and we have chat, phone, email, or just upload a, a design and you can get a quote.
0: I think that's uh it's very clear. <laughs> If people want to get directly into contact with you, we will put your email in the show notes. And uh, for anyone interested to learn more about Cutter, indeed, just go to cutter.com. Uh, All right, uh, Regina, thank you very much to be here today. Um, I found it a very interesting uh, uh, first conversation. I think what you are doing with Cutter is very um, necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I can speak from experience. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> we have been trying to... Uh, uh, solve it a little bit by necessity to get our product made, but I think there are uh, a lot of other parties and and organizations who struggle with the challenges that you guys are trying to solve. And if you zoom out from the vision perspective, I think indeed the more things we can produce in wood instead of concrete and yep. metal is a, is a is a little step closer mm. to a, a more sustainable future. So. Uh, I think it's uh, it's good work that you guys are doing and uh, I wish you the best of luck.
1: Thank you. And thank you for having me. This was fun.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bau podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure to subscribe to our channel. If you're interested in Bao Living in our Smart Adaptable Module or SAM, go check out our website, com.